Chapter Fourteen, Part Three, of Famous Sea Fights by John R. Hale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Famous Sea Fights by John R. Hale. Chapter Fourteen. Part Three. Men were killed in the turrets by shell splinters flying through the narrow gun openings. The fire hose was repeatedly cut to ribbons, and the men fighting the fire killed. The injuries caused by near explosions were terrible. Men were literally blown to atoms, or limbs were torn off. Eleven wooden boats piled up on the spar deck were a mass of roaring flame. Gun after gun was disabled and all the while a glance at the Japanese fleet showed them steaming and firing as if at peace maneuvers, without even one of their numerous flagstaffs and signal-yards shot away. The battle had not lasted an hour, and it was already evident that it could have only one ending. In the smoke and confusion Semenov could only see what was happening in the front of the line, but the other ships were exposed to a heavy fire, and had less resisting power. The Osliabia, the fifth of the battleships, and Folkersham's flagship during the voyage, was the first to succumb. The firing had hardly begun when a twelve-inch projectile penetrated her forward above the waterline. In fine weather the effect would not have been very serious, but the heavy sea flooded her two bow compartments. Then another shell started an armor-plate on the waterline amidships, flooded the bunkers on the port side, and gave her a heavy list in that direction. Unsuccessful attempts were made to right her by opening valves and admitting water on the other side. Then a shell burst in the fore turret, and put all the crews of the two guns out of action. She was now settling down by the head, and heeling over more and more to port. Suddenly the sea reached her lower gun ports and poured into her. Then, like the unfortunate Victoria, she turned turtle and sank. It was at 2.25 that she disappeared thus suddenly, the first battleship ever sunk by gunfire. Three of the destroyers picked up some of the crew who had jumped overboard. As she sank, the three other ships of her division, Sisoy, Navaran, and Nakimov, under the stress of the Japanese fire, sheared for a while out of the line with their upper works ablaze in several places. The four stately battleships at the head of the line had then to face the concentrated attack of the enemy. The Orel was suffering like her consorts. Though her armor was nowhere penetrated, the shells burst their way into her unarmored superstructure, and reduced everything on her upper decks to a tangled wreckage. Five minutes after the Osliabia sank, a shell wrecked the after-turret of the Suvorov, tearing the after-bridge to pieces with the flying fragments. Her steering-gear was temporarily disabled, and she drifted from her station at the head of the line. One by one in quick succession the heavy steel masts and the two huge funnels crashed down. The upper deck was impassable from end to end. In the midst of the confused wreckage, handfuls of brave men fought the fires with buckets as they broke out now here, now there. Most of the guns were silent. She no longer looked like a ship, says a Japanese account. 
When the Suvaroff swerved out of the line at a few minutes before three o'clock, her steering gear had been disabled, and probably for a few minutes before the crisis she had not been answering her helm. The course of the fleet, while she led it during the fight with the Japanese armoured fleet, had been due east, but, as she lost her direction, it turned slightly to the south. When she drifted away from the line, the Imperator Alexander III became the leading ship. Captain Buchfostov, who commanded her, led the fleet in a circle round the disabled Suvorov, first running southwards, increasing the distance from the enemy, and then sweeping round as if trying to break through to the northward. Togo followed on a parallel course, until the Russian fleet seemed to be going due south, then he signalled an order, and, as accurately as if they were performing a practice evolution at manoeuvres, his twelve ships turned simultaneously through half a circle, thus reversing the direction and changing the order of the fleet so that the last ship in the line became the leader. As the Russians swept round to the north, Togo was thus ready to cross their bows, and the Alexander received the concentrated fire of several ships. She turned eastwards, followed by her consorts in a straggling line, and then drifted out of her place at the head of it, leaking badly, and with her upper works ablaze. On a smoother sea the Tsarevich had been hit once below the armor belt on 10 August. The Borodino now had the dangerous post at the head of the line. It steamed eastwards for nearly an hour, followed by Togo on a parallel course, the Japanese fire only slackening when fog and smoke obscured its targets, and the fire of the Russians dwindling minute by minute, as gun position after position became untenable, or guns were disabled and dismounted. Long before this, the divisions of protected cruisers under Admiral Dewa and his colleagues had worked round to the southward of the Russians. Dewa and Uryu, with their swift ships, were in action by a quarter to three. The slower ships of Takeomi and the younger Togo's squadrons, united under the command of Rear Admiral Kataoka, came into the fight a little later. In the heavy sea that was running, the light cruisers afforded a less steady platform for the guns than the big armored ships, and their fire was not so terribly destructive. But it was effective enough, and that of the Russian rear ships was hopelessly bad. The Japanese cruisers drove the transports and their escort, in a huddled crowd, northeastwards towards the main Russian fleet. The great wall sides of the German liner, now the auxiliary cruiser Ural, were riddled, and the giant began to settle down in the water. The cruiser Svetlana, hit badly in the forepart, was dangerously down by the head. The transports Kamchatka and Ertish were both set on fire, and the latter was also pierced along the waterline. She sank at four o'clock. The Oleo and Aurora were both badly damaged, but the Japanese unarmored cruisers did not escape scathless. Dewa's fine cruiser, the Kasagi, was badly hit below the waterline, and was in such danger of sinking that he handed the command of his squadron over to Uryu, and, escorted by the Chitose, steamed out of the fight, steering for the Japanese coast. Togo's old ship, the famous Naniwakan, was also hit below the waterline, and had to cease firing and devote all the energy of the crew to saving the ship. 
At five o'clock the Russian fleet, battleships, cruisers, and transports, were huddled together in a confused crowd, attacked from the eastward by Togo and Kamimura with the heavy squadrons, while from the south the line of light cruisers under Uriu and Katioka poured a cross-fire into them. Away to the westward lay the disabled and burning Suvorov, with a Russian naval flag, the blue cross of St. Andrew on a white ground, still flying from a flagstaff in the smoke. The admiral had been twice wounded, the second blow slightly fracturing his skull, and making it difficult for him to speak. Her captain, Ignatius, had been simply blown to pieces by a Japanese shell, while, after being already twice wounded, he was directing a desperate effort to master the conflagration on board. The decks were strewn with dead, the mess-deck full of helpless wounded men. Most of the guns were out of action, but a six-inch quick-firer and a few lighter guns were kept in action, and drove off the first attempt of the Japanese destroyers to dash in and sink her. Still there was no thought of surrender. The few survivors of her crew fought with dogged Russian courage to the last. A torpedo-destroyer, the Buini, taking terrible risks, came up to her, hung on for a few moments to her shattered side, and succeeded in getting off the wounded admiral and a few officers and men. Raj Dispensky sent a last message to Nebogatov, telling him to take over the command, and try to get through with some part of the fleet to Vladivostok. About half-past five some of the Russian ships struggled out of the press, led by the burning Borodino, with the Orel next to her. In the straggling line, battleships and cruisers, armoured and unarmoured, were mingled together. The Alexander had succeeded in stopping some of her leaks, and had rejoined the line. She was near the end of it. The Ural, deserted by her crew, was drifting, till one of Togo's battleships sank her with a few shots. The Russians were now steaming northwards, and for the moment there was no large ship in front of them. The Japanese could have easily headed them off, but Togo now regarded them as a huntsman regards a herd of deer that he is driving before him. The Japanese squadron steamed after them at reduced speed, just keeping it at convenient range, the heavy ships on their right, the light squadrons behind them. At first the armoured ships concentrated their fire on the Alexander. Shells were bursting all over her, and throwing up geysers of water about her bows. Then the merciless fire was turned on the Borodino. A few minutes after seven, the Alexander was seen to capsize and disappear. A quarter of an hour later there was an explosion on board of the Borodino. Next moment a patch of foam on the waves showed where she had been. About the same time, a division of torpedo-boats came upon the unfortunate Suvorov, torpedoed her, and saved some of the crew, who were found floating on the water after she sank. As the sun went down, and the twilight darkened into night, 